0: Attention, Humo Army. I'm announcing a new venture. It is an e-magazine published by me called Misanthropology. Misanthropology is a portmanteau of misanthropy and anthropology. A misanthrope is someone who hates humanity and anthropology is the study of mankind. This magazine catalogs humanity at its worst save for the scantily-clad alt-models who are rather lovely and will grace the covers because, well, I'm sleazy enough to resort to using sexy girls to sell magazines. The official mascot for the magazine is the White Raven. According to lore, the White Raven is shunned from Black Raven society just because it's different. Different, in their case, doesn't mean inferior. The white raven is smarter and larger in stature to a black raven. Just like a white raven, this magazine is subversive and would not be welcome on a typical magazine rack. True crime will be featured in every issue, along with other controversial issues. Don't expect political correctness or family-friendly fare. Misanthropology is for adults only and not for the faint-hearted. You can download each issue from misanthropology.store. That is spelled M-I-S-A-N-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y.store. S-T-O-R-E. I didn't spell out those words because I think you're dumb. I spelled them out because some people can't spell, but that's okay. There are lots of people who can't spell, but can do other things amazingly well. With this magazine, you get a bargain. It's $5 Canadian per issue, which is cheaper than any magazine you get on the newsstand. You get a PDF, which can be viewed on any electronic device. Plus, it's longer than the average magazine. The first issue is over 240 pages long, including an article about incest that is over 200 pages. I'm all about value please check it out at misanthropology.store. Thank you and enjoy the show. Welcome to Human Monsters. Herbert Richard Baumeister was born on April 7, 1947, in Indianapolis, Indiana. He was the eldest of Herbert and Elizabeth's four children. Though his early childhood environment was as normal as one can imagine geographically, something quite aberrant was brewing inside of young Herb. Bill Donovan was a childhood friend, and their association brought into focus for him what had been some bizarre and disturbing obsessions on Baumeister's part. He recalled that Herb had a preoccupation with urine. He even asked him one day, point blank, What do you think it would be like to drink human urine? As if his timing in posing this question wasn't bad enough, considering that they were both in the fifth grade at the time, he queried Bill over lunch in the cafeteria. Hopefully, Bill wasn't drinking apple juice at the time. Bodily fluids didn't represent the be-all and end-all of Herb's bizarre preoccupations. He also developed a fixation on dead animals. Whenever he found roadkill, he played the part of amateur coroner and would conduct an ad hoc autopsy to get an impression of what made the creature tick. Bill Donovan witnessed one such incident. Bill and Herb were walking to school one day when Herb spotted a dead bird. The very sight of the bird's carcass excited Herb to no end. He picked it up and put it in his pocket. Blood and guts were spilling out of the bird's torso, but clearly this did not concern him. Instead of giving the bird a proper burial outdoors or placing it in an old shoebox with a straw, Baumeister was feeling theatrical he placed it on top of his teacher's desk. No apple for that teacher. Naturally, his teacher was mortified to find a rotting animal corpse on her desk. After grilling the entire class, she ascertained that Herb Bellmeister was responsible. Eventually, Herb Bellmeister would keep his strange obsessions to himself, As he transitioned to high school, though he was perceived as eccentric and was cast out accordingly, his peers mostly left him alone. He had few friends and never dated. It didn't affect his academic performance. He graduated and began his post-secondary education at Indiana University in Bloomington in 1965. Though he was initially excited to be enrolled at what was a highly prestigious academic institution, he dropped out after one semester. One thing that did emerge from his time at IU was his relationship with Julie Sater, his future wife. They met in 1968. Whatever she may have thought of his weird predilections and pastimes, if he did indeed disclose them to her. She described him on affectionate terms such as nice, fun to be with, and good-looking. They were also both conservatives and committed on a lifelong basis to the Republican Party. They married on November 21, 1971. Something went horribly askew within Herb soon after their wedding. He suddenly appeared distraught, without any kind of observable external catalyst. During one dark moment of the soul spent crying in their living room for days, his father checked him into La LaRue D. Carter Memorial Hospital, which was reputed for its top-notch psychiatric care. Herb was diagnosed with compulsive disorder, In those days, this diagnosis was a catch-all used for patients with widely ranging symptoms and the extensive overlap of such. Herb spent two months in LaRue, receiving frequent visitations from Julie. When he was released, he and Julie carried on as before. What Herb had not disclosed to Julie, his father or the staff at LaRue, was that he was gay. Realizing he had given his life and body to a woman for the rest of his days was a hardship with which he assumed he could cope. The gravity of the situation hit him all at once, and it was more than he could take. His treatment at LaRue did not address this issue since he kept it to himself, so, his mental health issues were certain to reemerge in the years to come. Herb and Julie shared an apartment when they were first married, but soon bought a house on 72nd Street, just blocks away from Herb's parents' house. They were both employed. Julie was teaching at Broad Ripple High School, and Herb was a clerk at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. He was eventually promoted to the position of Program Director of Financial Operations. He struggled to commit to his studies at the university and eventually quit altogether, so he made a career goal of rising to the top at the Bureau. Now that he and his wife were financially stable, they had their first child, daughter Marie, in November 1979. Their son Eric was born in 1981 and their second daughter, Emily, was born in 1984. Life was running smoothly for Herb and his family until 1985. That was the year when his career at the BMV ended. Herb enjoyed hanging out with his younger co-workers at the Bureau and even threw a party for one of them at their property in the country. After hours of drinking, Herb got into his car and went for a joyride. He was so inebriated that he wound up in a fender bender with another car. Getting caught drinking and driving as a high-level employee at the BMV was career suicide. He immediately set about covering up for his actions. He told his colleagues not to report the accident. The car he was driving belonged to a co-worker named Gregory Moe. Gregory and Herb had become close friends while working together at the BMV. The next day, Herb took Moe's car again. Moe's assumption was that Herb was taking it to an auto body shop for repairs. Three days later, he still hadn't heard from Baumeister. At that point, he assumed Herb had stolen the car and reported it as such to his insurer, whereupon he received an insurance payout And an allotment for a rental car. Though Herb considered the matter to be settled, his old friends at the BMV were appalled by this unethical conduct and they reported him to police. He was arrested on April 3, 1986. He was charged with theft and conspiracy to commit theft. His brother bailed him out. Fortunately for Baumeister, his colleagues decided that he had learned his lesson, and due to their lack of cooperation in the trial, he was acquitted. This was the first time in Herb Baumeister's life that he had gotten away with a crime, and one that could have put him behind bars for years, even without a prior criminal history. Instead of going back home with his tail between his legs, he became cocky and defiant, Amid his burgeoning belief that he could offend with impunity, urine would play a role in another defining incident of Herb Baumeister's life. He spotted a letter on his boss's desk. It was addressed to the governor of Indiana. Conveying his contempt for the government and the system in general, he got up on his boss's desk. And pissed his own signature on the document. Now that letter wasn't worth the paper it was printed on, especially not now that it was weathered, yellow, and smelled like urine. It is unknown how his boss found out it was Baumeister whose offending penis had sabotaged his correspondence with the governor, but Herb was terminated. Losing his job subjected Herb and Julie to considerable financial hardship. For a time, they were forced to rely on savings to get by. Herb decided to go into business for himself. He opened a thrift store called Save-A-Lot. His mother lent him $350,000 as startup capital. The store was an instant success, and he would go on to create a franchise. All locations turned a substantial profit. Herb restricted his urination to the store's washrooms. He enjoyed being his own boss, since he would not be forced to conform to the demands of a highly regimented environment. He made so much money from Save-A-Lot that he contributed some of the money to local charities— such as the Indianapolis Children's Bureau. The Baumeisters enjoyed a significant upgrade in their standard of living. Herb bought a million-dollar house in the affluent suburb of Hamilton County. The Baumeister family had the use of his mother's condominium by Lake Wawasee in Syracuse, Indiana. Herb did not join them there, claiming to have business to take care of at Save-A-Lot. The truth was, the time he spent with his family away gave him free rein to explore the local gay bars. He would bring young men with him back home and satisfy himself in ways that were impossible with Julie. July 22, 1994 34-year-old Roger Allen Goodlett of Indianapolis visited a gay nightclub and was never seen again. He was a night owl, typically staying out at the clubs and returning to his parents' house between 3 and 4 a.m. No matter what time he returned, he always came home. His mother Catherine became concerned when, after 48 hours, he still had not returned. It was not in his nature to simply disappear and fail to notify her that he would be away. She reported his disappearance to police. It would be three years before he would be found. In the meantime, because Roger was an adult, the police were required, as a matter of protocol, to wait 30 days before searching for him. This would not do for Roger's parents and they were impatient for results. They hired private investigator Virgil Vandegrift to find him. Vandegrift did everything in his power to track Roger down without success. The 30-day grace period was over. Two days later, he learned that another man from Indianapolis, Alan Bissard, was missing. Like Roger Goodlett, Alan was gay and very similar to Roger in most respects, including his lifestyle, which involved frequenting the same gay clubs, it was altogether likely that he could very well have been at least loosely acquainted with Roger Goodlett. Gay bars and clubs began to disseminate flyers, requesting all patrons with knowledge of the men's whereabouts to disclose what they knew to police. These efforts paid off in the sense that there was now a lead— Multiple witnesses saw Roger climb into the passenger seat of a new blue car that was parked in front of a public library. The driver was described as a white male in his late 30s to early 40s. The car bore Ohio plates. Vandegrift started a series of stakeouts, watching parking lots located close to the gay bars and clubs closely in hopes of seeing the car in question. A few weeks later, there was no sign the car would return, and he gave up on this lead. Meanwhile, the Indianapolis Police Department was fielding calls from the gay community left and right, including from publishers of gay-oriented periodicals, reporting the disappearance of other gay men. Van de and police detectives were now convinced that a serial killer was at large in downtown Indianapolis and that the bodies were about to pile up high if they didn't catch him soon. One promising lead came their way from a man named Mark Goodyear. He told the IMPD about a disturbing experience he had with a man he met at a gay bar. He accompanied the man back to his house. After an evening of carousing and foreplay, the host introduced some bizarre elements into the mix. The man turned out to be Herb Baumeister. The first thing that struck him as strange was that Baumeister set up mannequins around his swimming pool and elsewhere. When he asked Herb about it, his response was, I get lonely out here. The Save-A-Lot stores featured several mannequins modeling clothes. It struck Mark as an odd answer, considering that Herb told him he did not own the house, but worked there as a, quote, caretaker. He also lied about his age, claiming to be 28, when he was actually well-preserved in his late 40s. Baumeister told Goodyear he kept his sexual orientation a secret from his parents, which was likely true. He said that if they ever found out, it would kill them. What he failed to mention was that his father had died and his mother was 86, likely negating any possible consequences he might face for disclosing his sexuality to her. After the small talk, Herb asked Mark to get in the pool. He wanted to try a fetish about which he had been fantasizing for some time. The idea was what he called sexual affixation consisting of tying a band or rope around someone's throat to simulate strangulation, He claimed that after cutting off oxygen to the brain, a euphoric state would be triggered and the orgasm would be more intense than under normal circumstances. Perhaps as a means to allay Goodyear's suspicions and fears, Belmeister asked Mark to strangle him. According to Mark, Herb became unconscious during the strangulation and fell into the water. He came to after a few seconds, claiming to have enjoyed the experience. Baumeister took another swing at pitching the strangulation concept to Mark. Herb wasn't prepared to give up on this and grabbed the pool's hose. He wrapped it around Mark's neck. Realizing Herb had far more sinister motives in mind, Mark acted like he was unconscious to get a glimpse of Herb's true intentions. Herb released the hose from around his neck. He hovered over Mark. Mark suddenly opened his eyes. This startled Herb. As Mark tells it, it seemed that Herb did not expect Mark to recover from asphyxiation. Herb told Mark about what it was he liked to savor while watching his victims recover from strangulation. The bulging of the eyes. The cracking of their lips. He loved every second of it. Mark was uncomfortable with all this and made it clear to Baumeister that he was displeased. He told Herb his actions in the sexual arena were, quote, hurting people. Herb didn't take this seriously. Determined to make him see the error of his ways, Mark threatened to notify the police. Herb just laughed and said the police would never believe someone like him. Herb insisted the whole thing was a misunderstanding and took Mark home. Mark later wondered if Herb Baumeister might be responsible for the disappearances of some of his friends. He cooperated with the police investigation, providing a physical description of Baumeister in the process. It was about this time that Herb reached out to Mark. He requested a repeat of what they experienced together. During their conversations about asphyxiation, Herb admitted that there were what he called Accidents, and when things got out of control, there were deaths. Mark repeated this data to police. The problem was the conversation didn't serve as evidence or even as a confession. They needed to catch Baumeister or find proof of murder. They provided Mark with police protection in case Baumeister was planning on stalking and killing him. Determined to turn the tables on Baumeister, the police decided to use Mark Goodyear as bait. Their idea was to have Herb meet Mark at a gay nightclub called 501 Tavern. A date and time were set, but Herb Baumeister was a no-show. Back to the drawing board. Herb Baumeister was successfully juggling his life as a father, husband, an entrepreneur with this secret life of a homosexual serial killer. For the most part, nobody was the wiser. But a shift happened one day when his son Eric was playing in a field near the Baumeister residence with some friends. Whatever they hoped to find back there, a human skull was likely not at all what they expected. The apple must not have fallen far from the tree, for Eric used the skull as a toy and a comedy prop, placing it atop a stick. He intended to scare his sister with it. He and one of his friends waved the stick back and forth in front of her bedroom's window. His sister was not cognizant of the morbid practical joke that was being played on her, but his mother was. She was deeply shocked and ordered Eric to take her to the spot where the skull was discovered. Once they returned to the spot where the skull was found, they found other human bones. Julie's first instinct was not to report the finding to the police. Instead, she decided to bring it to Herb's attention. Many people were befuddled by and critical of this action. When presented with the bones... Herb claimed that they were holdovers from his studies at IU Medical School. Though Julie couldn't recall finding human bones among their belongings, their house was exceedingly cluttered, so discovering hidden objects was not an infrequent occurrence on their property. She accepted his explanation without question. Meanwhile, Mark Goodyear was meeting with Virgil Vandegrift. Goodyear was frustrated by the lack of progress that was being made in the investigation by Indianapolis police. Not only did it seem that they were not taking the case seriously enough, but they were more focused on Goodyear's drug use. Following that experience, he was eager to work with Van de Griff, cooperating with him at every step of the way. It was about this time that Van de Grift contacted the lead investigator of the so-called I-70 Strangler case, a detective named David Lindloff. Numerous gay men had been strangled to death and dumped along the side of the I-70 Interstate Highway, which runs through Ohio and Indiana. As Lindloff put it, You got two gay guys missing? Well, guess what? I know of 12 murders and most of them are gay guys from Indianapolis. The identities of the gay men found by I-70 were confirmed as being residents of Indianapolis. These men were murdered and dumped since around 1980. With a clearer indication of the scope of the crimes committed, Vandegrift realized it was time to bring this data to the attention of the Indianapolis PD. This time they paid attention and took the findings seriously. Marion County Police Detective Mary Wilson oversaw the Missing Persons Unit. She was assigned to the investigation. It was her task to collect more information on the victims. She had previously been in contact with Catherine Brissard, mother of Allen, so she was cognizant of the fact that, that a murderer was targeting the city's community of gay men. Wilson reached out to Mark Goodyear and interviewed him. Knowing that he was being taken seriously, she was able to draw more information out of him. She was also able to persuade him to do something that, up until then, had been unthinkable to him, visiting Fox Hill Farms, the estate of Herb Bellmeister. They drove out to the general area of Fox Hill Farms, but Goodyear was not able to pinpoint where the house was located. After all, Baumeister had driven him there late at night. If Goodyear had been intoxicated, it would have further impaired his recall. Considering that he met Herb in a bar, it was probable. When they were unable to find the property, they headed back to Indianapolis." Mark began to fear for his safety. He couldn't track down Herb Baumeister's house, but Baumeister showed up one day on the doorstep of Mark's friend. Mark was staying there at the time. He hadn't given the address to Herb, so it was puzzling. As Mark said to Detective Wilson, How in the hell did he get my address? I don't even stay there all the time. He called me on his cell phone, tells me he'll see me in a half hour. Before I know it, he's at my door. I've never had a utility or phone in my name in my life. Baumeister invited Goodyear to spend an evening with him. Mark gave him some excuses why he couldn't and then told him his boyfriend was trying to sleep in another room. This tactic paid off and Baumeister left. Detective Wilson persuaded Mark to spend more time at the gay clubs and bars so that he could get a glimpse of Baumeister's car and take note of the license plate number. This, in and of itself, was an ordeal for Mark. He has described this period as a low point in his life. Many of the victims had been close friends of his, and sometimes he would have a meltdown as his grief caught up with him. He would imagine their reactions as they were strangled by Herb Baumeister, and it was more than he could take. Nevertheless, he was still committed to the investigation and was determined to do his part to bring Baumeister to justice. One night, Mark Goodyear was at a bar when Herb Baumeister walked in. Goodyear struggled to cope with an intense wave of fear. He turned to some friends at the bar and said, That's him. That's the guy that killed Alan. I'm going to distract him. Suddenly, Herb saw Mark and headed in his direction. Mark turned to his friends and whispered, Get a pencil and paper from the bartender. Go out to the parking lot and stay there until you see him come out. Don't leave until you see him get in a car. And be sure to get his license plate number. Turning to his friend Albert in particular, he said, Don't fuck up, Albert. Get that number, no matter what. Her Belmeister was in spitting distance of Mark Goodyear at this point. It was showtime. Mark turned to his friends and said, Hey guys, looky here. If it isn't Brian, or whatever his name is, come, shake the hand of the guy who's killing all these guys. Strangling them. Like something out of a movie... The entire bar turned to Mark and Herb. All that was missing was the sound of a needle scratching its way off a turntable. Performance anxiety a thing of the past now, Mark patted Baumeister on the back and said, "Come on, old sport, show 'em the trick you showed me. That thing where you put your hands here." Mark put his hands around Herb's neck to drive home the point. "'Instead of being offended or intimidated by all the attention, "'Baumeister reveled in it. "'He smiled, put his hands around Mark's throat, and said, "'No, you do it like this.' "'Herb pushed his thumbs against Mark's neck and said, "'You pinch it just enough to shut off the oxygen to the brain. "'It's such a rush.' "'As this was happening, "'Albert was waiting outside for Herb to depart,' so he could see him get into his car and take down the license plate number. When Baumeister did leave the bar, he was shrewd. Realizing he was probably being watched, he scanned the parking lot to ensure nobody was watching him. From there, he took a walk around the block to further reinforce any confusion somebody may have felt regarding the whereabouts of his car. When Herb finally returned to his vehicle, Albert took down the plate number. This was the Eureka moment the investigators were waiting for. When they discovered he was the owner of Save-A-Lot, they looked at the location's files. What they found out was that in a couple reports entered by employees, Herb Bellmeister's primary residence was listed as Fox Hollow Farms. When Mary Wilson drove to this address, she took down license plates from the vehicles parked in the driveway. She discovered they were registered by Herb Baumeister. Wilson's next action was to print off the mugshot that was taken of Baumeister when he was charged with auto theft years before. She showed it to patrons of the gay community's bars and clubs. He was recognized by all the regulars. Wilson wanted to confirm Mark Goodyear's recollection that there was a swimming pool on the Baumeister's property. A neighbor questioned by Wilson noted that they had been a guest to the Baumeister residence and confirmed that the family owned a swimming pool. Wilson tried the tack of entering Save a Lot locations under the guise of a browsing customer in hopes that Baumeister would appear but he never did. November 1st. Accompanied by Detective Thomas Green, Mary Wilson went to save a lot and told the clerk she wished to speak with Baumeister. The cashier went in back and brought him to the front desk. He fit the profile of others' descriptions. Tall, effeminate, pouty lips and leathery skin due to frequent sessions at a tanning salon. He came across as imperious. He also appeared to be frustrated about being disturbed. Wilson wasted no time. She informed him she and Green were investigating the disappearances of gay men from the Indianapolis area. Seasoned detectives are good at spotting liars and Herb Baumeister was not convincing in the role of unflappable interview subject. He appeared to be on edge. Still, he managed to get himself together enough to say I'd be happy to cooperate, but I'm really busy right now. Could you possibly come by later this afternoon? Wilson knew he was full of shit, but she humored him, saying, Sure. Over lunch at a diner nearby, Wilson and Green both agreed that Herb Baumeister's anxious response to questioning was a dead giveaway. He was the prime suspect. When Wilson and Green returned to the Save a Lot, Baumeister was there, as promised. They interviewed him in his office. He was polite and formal acting like he was dumbfounded by the notion that he should be a person of interest at all. He said, Well, what can I do for you? Employing the Reed technique, they told him they knew he was involved with the massacre of gay men under investigation. Feigning incredulity, Herb said, I've never been to a gay bar. I'm not gay. So I don't really know why you would come to me or how I could help you. Wilson pointed out that evidence proved he had, in fact, been a patron at one gay bar in particular. Reinforcing this point, Mary said, We've got the license plate number from your car when it was parked outside a gay bar. Herb was silenced by this. He looked down at his hands, which were fidgeting with objects on his desk. His jugular vein was throbbing. Finally, he said... Okay, I've been to gay bars. Explaining his previous evasion when it came to that matter, he said, But my wife doesn't know, and neither does anybody else, and I don't want them to. The detectives asked him if they could search Fox Hollow Farms. Baumeister said, Well, I'd really like to cooperate, but you'll really have to talk to my attorney. With that, he led the detectives out of his office. Still, this didn't count as evidence. It occurred to them that the real reason he was so uptight could have been that he was reluctant to come out of the closet. The next day, Wilson called Herb, and he informed her that he was being represented by a lawyer named James Voiles. What she didn't expect was that when she called Voiles to question him, He was dumbfounded when informed that Herb Baumeister identified him as his legal representation. He had never even heard of Herb Baumeister. Two weeks later, Voiles revealed that he had, by then, been retained by Baumeister. Until then, Voiles' alleged representation was used as a distraction scenario. November 30th, 1995. Julie Baumeister managed the Castleton Save-A-Lot location. Mary Wilson was aware of this and approached Julie there to speak with her about investigating the property around her house. Julie was shocked by this request. Herb had told her that police were investigating him, but that it was related to allegations of theft. The detectives informed her it was a homicide investigation. Despite her son's discovery of human remains in the backyard, she insisted they had the wrong guy and declined to cooperate in the investigation. Mary Wilson would have to obtain a search warrant, and there were no shortcuts. The investigation was taking a toll on her. Baumeister. One day he called John Egloff, the lawyer who oversaw save financial matters. Herb insinuated that he was contemplating suicide, though he didn't acknowledge the connection to the investigation of the murdered gay men. He claimed it was because the business was in danger of going under and that bankruptcy was, by then, in the realm of possibility. He said to Egloff, Five minutes after you hang up the phone, I won't be here anymore. Egloff was caught off guard, he said. Herb, are you talking about what I think you're talking about? Herb said, I know what you were going to say. You've been a good friend, and I expect you to try to talk me out of this. But my mind's made up. I've thought about this, and it's best for Julie and the kids. Baumeister hung up immediately. Alarmed, Egloff called police and told them about the situation. Herb wasn't home, however. He was an early adopter of cell phone technology and called from his car. Julie pulled up into the driveway just before squad car arrived. The officer explained why he was dispatched to their home. Julie called Herb's cell phone and filled him in on what was happening. When she asked him if he really was suicidal, he denied it and even insisted he was baffled that Agloff would get that impression. He followed up by calling Agloff back and chastising him for calling the police and getting Julie upset. Herb Baumeister's sanity continued to unravel. He would fly into senseless rages over petty issues. As Julie recalled, In December 1995, they were getting prepared to attend a stage play their daughter was performing in. Herb screamed at her because he felt she was taking too long to get ready. He was vain and fussed over his own appearance, but somehow that behavior was unacceptable when it came to Julie. January 4, 1996. Herb's behavior toward Julie did not improve. And she filed for divorce. As noted in court documents, she observed in Herb's conduct, quote, serious emotional instability. She requested temporary custody of their children. Julie had filed for divorce from Herb before, in 1991, and once again she took him back. He moved back into Fox Hollow Farm by January 31st. Adding to her Baumeister's stress was the financial problems that plagued his business. He was deeply in the red, owing a total of $167,247.14 in rent, back taxes, and various fees. He began taking out his frustration on his employees, becoming the Gordon Ramsay of second-hand clothing. One clerk reported that he instructed her to hang 85 items of clothing every hour. No more, no less. Using order as a sledgehammer on the chaos that was making a mess of his life wasn't working, and he soon grew despondent. He became a heavy drinker. He went from breathing down his employees' necks to showing up to the locations less and less often. When he was in his office... He gave strict instructions to his employees that he was not to be disturbed. His workers could smell alcohol on his breath. So resigned was he to his impending fate that he began having sexual relations with young men in his car. Not only did this occur in public, but it would transpire in a save-a-lot parking space. Her Baumeister was broken. Herb and Julie had become estranged from each other. Julie was disillusioned with him and began to wonder if the things he had said to her were true. After all, if he was being investigated for a series of murders and her son found a human skull in their backyard, there must have been some merit to the allegations. These revelations were finally seeping through her own thick skull, and the Tower of Illusion Herb constructed around himself appeared to be teetering over. The notion that your husband could be a closeted homosexual and a serial killer is a lot to take in, but it was time to ingest this bitter-tasting medicine if the patient and her family could return to some semblance of normalcy. She was no longer sure of Herb's parenting skills. She was cast further into doubt when he announced to her that he was going to enroll all the children in Culver Military Academy for a six-week summer semester, starting in June. She was alarmed that he would spring this on his family without consulting her first. He was no longer thinking clearly. If he felt the best-case scenario would be to send them away for six weeks, there must have been some kind of event on the horizon he didn't want them to witness. Following this announcement, Julie took the situation into her own hands and filed for full custody of the children. Soon after Julie filed for custody of the children, she became a central figure in the criminal investigation of Herb Baumeister. Her own attorney, William Bill Wendling, notified Detective Mary Wilson about an important detail of the Baumeister clan's history when he said to her, I feel I'm at liberty to tell you now. Julie found a skull on her property a couple of years ago. June 24, 1996. A joint investigation combining the police departments of Hamilton County and Marion County directed its attention to Fox Hollow Farm. Julie cooperated this time around letting the officers into the house without demanding a search warrant. She discussed her son's discovery of the skull and the other bones they found. She also intimated that she suspected that there were likely other such materials on the property. The officers were puzzled that she only decided to convey this information at that time. She disclosed that Eric was staying with Herb and that she wanted Eric back. It occurred to the officers that her only motivation to cooperate with the investigation was driven by a desire to exact revenge on Herb. Moments later, Julie led Mary Wilson and her colleagues to the spot where the bones were found. The flora surrounding the spot had been burned. When the investigators sifted through the detritus, one of them produced a long bone that had once been part of a human limb. Julie expressed surprise at this discovery, but the officers found her reaction to be contrived and affected. Searching further, the police found several smaller bones and some teeth. Another dent in Julie's credibility was made when she became impatient during the search, demanding to know when they were going to bring Eric back to her. Hamilton police captain Tom Anderson said to her, Let's just see what the bone guy says about these. The bone guy in question was forensic anthropologist Stephen Naroski. His prognosis after examining the bones was encapsulated in this statement. They're human, they're recent, and they've been burned. Mary Wilson notified Tom Anderson that they were going to continue their search in the morning. More excavation was underway. Under Stephen Norosky's supervision, the exhumation team went to work to ascertain if there were more remains to be found. Their search was fruitful. Numerous hand bones, a tooth, a femur, a fibula, and a tibia, They hoped to find skulls and complete sets of teeth, but no such luck. The investigators tried to find relevant evidence in the house amid the clutter. Many of the items that were put on sale at Save-A-Lot were kept in the house before they were taken to the store, so it took hours to sift through it all to find incriminating materials. The only item at the house that was entered into evidence was the pool's hose. Given that strangulation was allegedly Herb Baumeister's execution method of choice, they realized the hose could be significant to the investigation. Julie was awarded full custody of Eric. Herb wasn't about to win any points as a parent while he was investigated as a serial killer. When the police went to the cottage where Eric and Herb were staying, Eric was brought out to the cruiser. He began to cry. Herb put his arm around him reassuringly. He told him it was all likely based on a misunderstanding and would soon be resolved. Eric asked the officers to let him go back inside and collect his belongings, but they wouldn't allow it. Herb brought him his suitcase after talking to his lawyer on the phone. His lawyer told him there was nothing he could do about the custody situation. Herb told Eric he would take care of it. He was lying to his own son now. Eric was questioned by police at the station. Julie gave her approval. She wanted him in police custody because his bond to Herb was strong, and she feared Eric would run away if he were given the freedom to do so. The interview soon mutated into an interrogation and the detectives were very hard on Eric. Their handling of the interview has been deemed unduly harsh and thereby inappropriate for a minor. The only result was it left Eric feeling even more distressed since he hadn't done anything wrong. He was 15 years old, but he was still too sensitive for such treatment. They would ask him questions like, Did you know your father was gay? He was discombobulated and could only say no. It's not like Herb brought Eric to the gay bars to meet the boys at the counter. Eric lied to protect Herb when questioned about finding the bones. Given the way the detectives were treating him, he wasn't prepared to do them any favors. Eric loved Herb too much to throw him under the bus, so he was not going to be a fertile source of incriminating information. Kevin Dennison, who was with Eric when they found the skull, was contacted where he was then living in Colorado and confirmed that they found the skull at Fox Hollow Farm. When the interview was over, the detectives took Eric back to their squad car. One of them said, We're going to get you back to your mom. This was a lie. Due to his mother's request to keep him from running away, Eric was remanded to the Hamilton County Juvenile Detention Center, where he would really be treated like a criminal. When the car pulled up to the facility, Eric began screaming at the cops, saying, I want out of here. I didn't do anything. While Julie was questioned, she cast aspersions on Herb at every turn, characterizing him as a, quote, mean man who could do very mean things to people. To avoid accusations that she was in any way Herb's accomplice, she said, I had no family, no place to go, and Herb would get his way by making my life so miserable, by playing head games, so I would do what he wanted. Years later, Julie admitted that, despite all that had happened due to Herb's behavior, she still loved him. When she was asked about her sex life with Herb, she said that not only was the sex infrequent, but on their honeymoon, Herb was reportedly more interested in reading a magazine than in having sex with her. She didn't know this was unusual because she didn't have any married girlfriends with whom to compare notes. She said that she never saw Herb naked. When they did have sex, usually just a breed, it was always with the lights out and he insisted on doing it under the covers. She recalled that Herb would disappear for long periods of time, and she could not account for his whereabouts. June 28th, forensic anthropologist Stephen Norowski organized the largest excavation at Fox Hollow Farm yet, accompanied by 60 volunteers, the majority of whom were police officers firefighters, and EMTs. He instructed them to form a line at a length of 1,300 feet. He wanted to cover the entire area of the property's surroundings. Thousands of bone fragments were unearthed. Another significant discovery was when two landscapers working on a neighbor's property referred Narosky's team to the Baumeister's compost heap. This didn't require much digging, Spines, mandibles, vertebrae, and ribs announced their presence by protruding from the ground. As Naronsky remarked, it's like a bomb went off in a people factory. On July 1st, a landscaper was mowing the lawn when he stumbled upon a set of handcuffs. Herb Baumeister placed phone calls to all his children. He told them how much he loved and cared for them. Every call ended with goodbye as the last word they heard from their father. July 3, 1996. Herb Baumeister was found dead in Sarnia, Ontario, Canada, by some campers. He was nattily dressed in a suit with a patriotic tie. He left an envelope beside him, in front of which read, Attention Canadian Authorities. His suicide note was contained within. The note was replete with apologies. He expressed remorse for ruining his marriage and for leaving the finances of save in shambles. He even expressed remorse for casting such a dark pall over the park in which he killed himself which is normally a recreational resort. No regrets were expressed regarding the men he murdered, not once in three pages. No funeral was held, as the case had attracted significant media coverage and the attention would have disturbed his children and they had been through enough trauma for a lifetime. Thalmeister's guilt was never proven by forensic evidence because on two separate occasions it was carelessly gathered and handled, rendering it useless as a subject for analysis. Still, he was identified by a living person as the party who strangled them, and a makeshift cemetery was discovered in his backyard. Herb's anxiety during questioning was the closest thing investigators would get to a confession. Was Herb Baumeister really so desperate to conceal his homosexuality that he would murder anybody who possessed definitive carnal knowledge of his true sexual orientation? You be the judge. Speculation abounds. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters. Bye for now.